You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, quick word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty's Subscription Fly Box. Smitty's has been producing high-quality flies and materials for over 30 years, so now it's time to take the guesswork out of fly time materials and patterns. You can support this podcast right now and get a great selection of flies and fly time materials right now at Smitty's Fly Box. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Jeff? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for putting this together. I know you have a busy schedule running. Uh, we're going to dig into your position there with the Mayfly Outdoors, and you know what? What are probably probably three of the biggest companies in fly fishing: um, Ross uh, Reels, Able, and then of course uh, Airflow. So we're going to talk about that. There's a really cool. I know a lot of our listeners use. Uh, you know, all that equipment. But uh, before we get there, let's drop it back. We always start with fly fishing and then we'll take it into how you got to where you are. But how did it start? What's your first memory of fly fishing? Oh man. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up in Sydney, Nebraska, um, kind of an odd place, I think to, to learn how to fly fish, but home of Cabela's. So, oh, there you go. um, yeah. So my, my first memory of fly fishing was really a, a nine foot eight weight at the time, what they call the St. John's combo, and just a, you know, pretty inexpensive $100 outfit from Cabela's. And, you know, it's actually more about casting when I originally got involved. You know, I, I wanted to fly fish, but, you know, in Sydney, there's not a lot of water. If you haven't, if you've been to Western Nebraska. No, I haven't yet. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, spent, uh, you know, a, a lot of my time originally was just casting. Um, I, I loved it. I loved learning about it. I, you know, would watch all the fly fishing shows. And, and so, you know, picked up the outfit, started um, casting a lot. And then, you know, the, and then started fishing local trout streams in Western Nebraska. I'm, I'm a little, little hesitant to share that, but there's a lot of okay. uh, cool little trout streams in Western Nebraska and then a lot sure. of warm water. So, um, you know, do a lot of bass, bluegill, carp, pike, you know, that kind of stuff that was in Western Nebraska. And then, yeah, started migrating out from there and, into Wyoming, Colorado, South Dakota, and other places. Yeah, that's right. Because Nebraska, it's we've talked about this before, but you kind of have the, you know, the western states, which you hear a lot about. Then you got the strip down the middle, the Dakotas, Nebraska, right, and all that. Um, and then you have everything else on the east. So it's interesting. I guess you know you grew up in one of those places that isn't a hot spot. Um, although there are some opportunities, like you said, you're bordering Wyoming on the west, so there are some. Um, what, what is that like over on that part? Is that um, is that kind of like high uh, plains or what, what does the habitat look like out there? 
Yeah, it's all high plains, right? The you know average elevation is four to kind of six thousand feet. Um, short grass prairie, that kind of thing, and and um, you know it's it's actually you know the water most of the water temps stay pretty cold. So if there's cold moving water, it can typically hold trout either in eastern Wyoming or in western Nebraska, and um, you know you often find that, and that's where a lot of these small trout streams in western Nebraska are. They they're coming out of the sand hills, which is a really unique kind of environment you know truly sandy hills right that are that are really short uh, short grass coming off of them water tables you know a couple feet underneath the surface but those streams are some of the most um you know the, the average flows on an annual basis uh, vary by one or two cfs they're some of the most constant flowing streams in the world and and so this water coming out of these sand hills flows into the north platte river um, and there's a lot of really really cool little streams that have a lot of uh, good naturally reproducing water. Most of it's on private ground. There's some public ground, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, they're really neat fisheries. And, and honestly, they fish really well in the winter. So um, a lot of midges uh, in the winter. And so I got pretty adept at a, at a young age fishing super small midges in cold weather. Um, and, you know, while it was 20 degrees or 30 degrees outside and you're fishing 18 or 20, you know, dry flies on these streams, the, the water themselves uh, is often, you know, 50 degrees, 45 degrees as it's coming out of the uh, groundwater, out of the groundwater. So it's kind of an interesting, unique, uh, unique area to learn. But the other cool thing I, about that, that, that I loved was, you know, I could be fishing one of these trout streams and then move five miles away to a lake or a reservoir and catch, you know, again, uh, bass, bluegill, pike, carp, whatever. And so, you know, within a really short distance, you just have a huge number of species that you can catch. That's great. Yeah. So, so, I mean, really, and that's the thing, we have listeners in every state. So, I mean, I know we have a few out in Nebraska in that area as well. So I just haven't heard, we haven't done an episode. So I think that's something we might have to tee up, dig into some of the Nebraska. Do you think it's worthy of an, a podcast episode, the fishing opportunities there? You know, I, as much as I, you know, um, I, I'm probably, uh, I'm probably <laughs> a normal fly fisherman, right? Where I yeah. love to tell people about where I fish, but I don't want a bunch of people showing up yeah. where I fish, right? That's but, right. but I, I totally think that it's worthy. And, and actually the state of Nebraska produces a trout fishing brochure that highlights where all these streams oh, are and they're, yeah, they're pretty easy to find. You can Google it and they're all there and you can, and it is pretty cool. And there are some nice public, uh, public access points and often the fish aren't big, although there are some fish over, over 20 inches, but you know, if in the middle of January, you're looking for a cool place to fish small drives, it's, it's awesome. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So you got, so you're out in Nebraska and then now where are you now currently? Uh, right now I'm in Montrose, Colorado. So Western slope of Colorado, just South of Grand Junction. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. So you're not too far, too far away from where you grew up. No, not, I mean, yeah, I mean, seven or eight hours, right? You got to get over the mountains, but yeah, yeah, yeah not too Perfect. Far. Well, I know you have a background. I don't know your whole background, so I'd love to hear that. But right now, currently, maybe you could talk about that, your your current role with the Mayfly uh, Outdoors, because it's, um, maybe talk about that and then how, where you came from, because I think there was a little uh, stint with Smart Wool and some other things in there. Yeah, for sure. So uh, currently president CEO of, of Mayfly Outdoors and Mayfly Outdoors is comprised of Ross reels, Able reels, airflow fly lines, and and actually Dyna King vices mm. um, that we just as a, have acquired this year. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Awesome. Yeah, Dyna Kings again. Another one of those 
one of those major, you know, I mean, it's one of the top brands out there. So, uh, so now you have the four. What was, um, what was it like? Like to talk about the transition. I'm not sure how this opportunity came up, but it sounds like you've got a history in fly fishing. Have you done other fly fishing industry positions over the years or was this your first one? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, um, yeah, people are often curious, I think, especially in fly fishing, right? Like how do you get into a fly fishing brand? And so for me, I, I, I've, always been in the outdoor industry. Every position I've ever had has been in outdoor industry and started really with uh, Cabela's um, and had about 15 years worth of uh, work at Cabela's uh, in variety of positions from retail all the way up through. I've started a couple of fly shops. We can go into more detail, but, and uh, worked um, from Cabela's. I was, uh, had a stint at uh, Winston Fly Rods as president of Winston Fly Rods. And then, uh, yeah, moved on to VF Corp. And VF Corp is Smart Wool, Icebreaker, North Face, uh, Vans, all those kind of really cool, iconic brands. But I then I had about five years with, uh, well, three years with Smart Wool and about two years with Icebreaker, um, which are high-end kind of premium clothing wool brands. And then went uh, from there to basically here uh, at Mayfly Outdoors. There you go. There you go. Wow. Yeah. You just threw out a bunch of more giant brands, right? I mean, it (laughs) seems like you've worked with some of the largest brands in the outdoor space, like it all covered it all. Yeah. I think, you know, looking back, I've been, I feel very fortunate to have been able to work for some of the most iconic brands for sure in the outdoor industry. And, and uh, what I also love is that I've been on all sides of it. So starting out in retail and and seeing that retail, true brick and mortar retail side, e-com side with Cabela's catalog, even right. When I started with Cabela's, we, you know, we're still printing the, the mega catalog that everybody knows about, but yeah, then also some of these other uh, great, uh, wholesale brands that are also a little bit direct to consumer. Um, but fly fishing has always been in there. And, and so I, I think, you know, important to consider too, for my role and kind of how I got there is, you know, I, I feel like I kind of have two resumes. One is this kind of professional resume that we just talked about. And the other one is, is more fish and fishing. And so my, my undergrad is actually in uh, aquatic biology, biology, spent some time with national park service, doing native fisheries restoration work um, for a variety of species in a variety of parks um, have, you know, been a long member of fly fishers international and their fly casting program, master certified fly casting instructor um, and just kind of teaching, educating. And now I, I think I've been writing for fly fusion magazine for 10 years as a fly fishing uh, fly casting field editor. And, and yeah, so, you know, have a kind of came into this position, I think in a, variety of ways, but it's uh, both professional and then, and then wow. kind of personal, personal approach. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely say you're, you're, you're qualified for the position. It sounds like with all that background, that's amazing. Uh, so I got to ask you this because I just got finished watching the movie. Uh, have you seen free solo? Do you know that story? Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I'm new to it. I, we've been doing some episodes kind of on some of that covering and I didn't know about, I've, I know the name Alex Honnold, but I didn't, I hadn't seen the movie. Wow. I mean, in North Face, I noticed just in that movie, he was wearing some North Face stuff. What, what's your take on that, that person, that whole thing? It just seems like oh my unbelievable. Yeah. And so, uh, have done some rock climbing and, and not big at all, but did a lot of, you know, some with, uh, my, actually our whole family. So we've done some rock climbing, bouldering, Climbing gyms, those kind of things, and and watching if you've done it at all, right? Which I haven't. Which I haven't. That's why when I see this, I'm like, <laughs> it just seems like crazy. You're climbing a five thousand yeah. foot thing that nobody has done, and if you make one slip, you fall to your death. 
Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of the most extreme things that you've ever seen. I think even while we're sitting here talking, my hands are sweating just because it's, it's so amazing and so far beyond what I think anybody can really even right. imagine yep. because of how, I mean, death is, you know, is always a split second away for him. Um, but, you know, truly one of the most, probably most amazing physical feats that's ever, you know, been done by a human and, Will it ever even be topped or done again? I, I don't know. But yeah, absolutely incredible. If you haven't seen the film, highly, highly would recommend it uh, unless you're super afraid of heights. And then, yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay, good. So, so awesome. So you're, you're there now and talk a little bit about, I want to dig into a few of the brands. I mean, you've got, uh, Ross was the thing I was thinking. I mean, I've heard about them and I think they have the 50th anniversary coming up. Maybe, maybe tell us a little story on Ross. Let's, let's use that as a way to kind of understand a little bit about the brands that, that you are in charge of here. Um, can you tell us the background there, the little story, how that, that company began? Yeah, for sure. I, and, and I, you know, we're super fortunate. Um, this is the 50th anniversary of Ross this year, started in 1973. Um, and, um, we, you know, I, I think one of the things that of all the brands that we have, we really try to focus on premium legacy fly fishing brands. That's how we would describe all the brands that we have. Um, and Ross is definitely that, right? Started in 1973, actually in California by Ross Houck. Um, and, um, actually it's interesting. I, um, cut a little bit of a collector too. So he was just able to pick up the sixth Ross reel ever produced and it was produced for Mel Krieger, um, and kind of put it in my collection. But, um, you know, when you see these original reels, they were premium even at that time and had a variety of different components between machined and stamped and those kind of things. And, you know, existed there for a period of time and came to Colorado, uh, shortly after and, you know, really evolved in Colorado from, yeah, through the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, as I, I think probably one of the most iconic kind of staples in the fly fishing industry as far as reels go. And, you know, within that kind of legacy that we pursue, Rob Hauk, who is Ross's son, and even was there in kind of the garage days, um, is now our head of engineering um, and is designing all of our reels still. So it's really kind of been within the family, even though, you know, has become uh, a company part of Mayfly Outdoors and the Hawks still uh, are a part of it, both Ross and Rob. Uh, we still have, see Ross here on a, okay. probably a weekly basis and, uh, and Rob's here. Uh, there you go. Day. So both yeah. of the, so the founder and the founder, so they're still involved in, in the company. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we really appreciate that, encourage that. And, you know, I think for any of the brands that we have, that's been true. And Airflow has been around for, you know, almost 30 years. And, um, you know, Gareth Jones, who's been there almost since the beginning, uh, Gareth's got 30 years with, uh, with Airflow and is a really well established, you know, person in the industry, just brilliant beyond almost any, you know, anyone's recollection when it comes to fly fishing. And, you know, and, and so we have airflow lines, able reels, uh, also started in California here in Colorado now. And Jeff Patterson, you know, is our head of sales, but he's been with the brand for, with able for 30 years and is still with us. And then, um, you know, just acquiring Dyna King. And so, you know, we, we really do try to maintain that legacy within the kind of premium nature of them and try to make sure that that's part of our differentiator, right. Is they're not getting lost in kind of the, you know, some corporate noise or something right. like that. But, you know, we, I, I think all of us still feel like fly fishing is, uh, is a special pursuit and that it would be pretty easy to, 
to increase volumes or sell out to some degree, but, you know, we still really believe in, in independent retail and in supporting fly shops and fly fishing industry. And so we try to do that, you know, obviously things have to kind of change and evolve, but uh, I think you'll find for each of the brands that, that we continue to pursue that. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I remember, uh, I mean, yeah, just the history when I look back at those three, well, those four companies, all of them, I mean, they've been, I don't, I don't see any changes like downturns. It feels like they've always been kind of, I mean, even from Abel, right? You think Abel, they, I remember way back, right? They came out with their, the crazy reels. I remember that before anybody, it seemed like they had that reel that was the Jerry Garcia or whatever, right? They had the unique thing. What makes Ross, you know, what's their differentiator? What, how do you think they're different than some other reels? Yeah. And, and so first of all, I would say made in the USA for sure. You know, the fact that, um, you know, there is every component that we can source in the U.S. Uh, we absolutely do. And, um, you know, I think uh, another component of that is our anodizing. Um, and this is true for Able as well, but we own the anodizing facility in California. Uh, for both brands. And we can talk about that with Abel as well. Um, I think the design features, right? Uh, the, you know, from the San Miguel and uh, kind of the Animus, you know, the same drag components that have been used with a really low startup inertia. Um, and and then lightweight too. I think um, certainly that's a little bit of a differentiator in between Ross and Abel is that if you look at a Ross Colorado, you know, it's a ultra lightweight kind of minimalist design. Um, but still, as you're looking at, uh, at an Animus or, you know, an LTX, uh, the drag that we're using today is kind of a similar platform that's been used for, you know, a long, a number of years. And, you know, we try to maintain somewhat of a similar platform in that regard. And then, you know, we've just um, actually just launched a New reel for us, which is the Ross Cimarron, uh, which is the lowest priced, you know, least expensive as far as I know, American made reel to be $295 for a USA made uh, fly reel. And we're super proud of that, right? That That's one of the things we try to do, you know, between all of our brands is while Able is, you know, some of the more expensive reels in the industry, um, also trying to make reels as approachable as possible and fly fishing as approachable as possible and still support U.S. manufacturing. And so doing that through this uh, new Ross Cimarron, which is kind of, you know, harkens back to, the, you know, some of the older Cimarron reels that they had. Uh, but really trying to bring that forward. So we're, we're super excited about that as well. And then I'd say the other thing that we really do and have really kicked off in the last year is uh, a super strong partnership with Trout Unlimited. And so we kicked off our greenback series of real. And, you know, again, I think the thread that you're going to find through all the brands is this uh, conservation ethic. We're also, you know, Mayfly and extending to Ross, Amel, and Airflow are all B Corps. So we're a, a B Corp. We can talk more about that. But, you know, the greenback reel is exactly that. You know, we worked with Trout Unlimited to define a project in the headwaters of the Cache Laputa River in Fort Collins um, that we could give back to a specific project to reintroduce, you know, genetically as close as we can, genetically pure greenback cutthroat trout, native species. And so every reel you buy is $75 to Trout Unlimited that'll go specifically to that project. And then, um, you know, after that, we'll complete kind of the cutthroat, Colorado cutthroat trifecta of greenback Colorado and Rio Grande. And so each of those will identify a project. And so at this point, we're, I think we're a little over $45,000 just year to date 
that's been raised specifically for native cutthroat restoration in the state of Colorado. And, you know, we hope to expand that. I think that's, uh, you know, one of the cool opportunities of, of Ross is to really double down on that and, and make sure that, you know, we're doing our part as a, as a company to, to support native fisheries and, uh, and, and make sure that, you know, we're maintaining those, yeah, cool fish that have been around for, for a lot longer than, you know, most of us have been, or, or even some of the, you know, non-native species. Amazing. That's so cool. I'm just looking. Yeah. You got, uh, the, uh, rossreels.com slash native reels. You've got the, the reel that I guess that's the clear, the clear fork East muddy Creek project. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. Looks like it's a yeah, it's a beautiful reel. You got it's gold, and so is that the coloration of the fish? And it looks like is that kind of the the spotting? Yeah, so that's the Colorado cutthroat reel, and then the greenback reel is uh, kind of a uh, an orange reel, and then it's got the spots. So when you see the clicker plate on the back too, the other thing we tried to do was uh, bring it out a little bit more. So those are all hand painted spots. Kind of goes a little bit to what we do with Abel. Um, so those are hand painted spots on the clicker plate and then a unique color for each of the reels. Wow. That's really, yeah, it's a sweet reel. Okay. So that, and these reels are set up, um, what do you cover with raw? Does the lineup, I mean, pretty much have everything now, like for all species is that, do you, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we do. And especially from the Cimarron. So now we go from like 295 to around $800 and, you know, from true click Paul, like a Colorado all the way to, you know, full on drags for, for heavy salt. Nice. Yeah, this is great. Okay. And then let, let, you mentioned the B Corp. I wanted to ask you about that. What is the the B Corp? Describe how you get to that, uh, what that is, and then how you guys got involved in that. Yeah. You know, the B Corp is, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just kind of a little bit of a different way to look at business, I guess I would say. So, you know, um, you know, typical corporation setup, right, is, is primarily looked at, you know, for shareholder value and, trying to make, and which is great. And, and obviously companies have to be profitable. That that's, I don't think it'll be a surprise in anything, but from a B Corp standpoint, what we're really looking at is kind of a triple bottom line of people, profit and planet. So, you know, we really are, obviously we, we have to be a profitable organization. Otherwise we couldn't do the things we do, but then we're also able to you know, make decisions that sometimes might emphasize sustainability or taking care of people over profitability. Um, and there's definitely been times where we have done that and are proud of that. Obviously, again, still trying to be profitable at the same time. But, you know, I think a good example is, um, you know, we anodizing. So we're putting a new anodizing facility in Montrose, Colorado, which is uh, super exciting. We're keeping our facility in California as well, but we'll have a new one in Colorado. And this new facility is, you know, it's a pretty hefty investment, but, you know, typically when you think of anodizing, you're thinking of using these acids and corrosive materials in order to color. And, you know, historically it's never been a great, a great process. However, both the way that we do it in California, but especially the way that we're going to be doing it in Colorado, we, we don't even have a, there's not even a floor drain in the facility and that's purposeful so that nothing could ever come in contact with the waterways, either city water or a river. Um, and we're pretty close to the Uncompagre river here. And so the whole anodizing facility is either recirculatory, circulating, right? So it's, it's a recirculating system, evaporative. So we'll just evaporate off the water or it gets hauled away, which is a very minimal amount that gets hauled away by waste, uh, waste management. So it's, 
for sure is the uh, most state-of-the-art anodizing facility with the least amount of environmental impact that, that you can. Now, we could have done a facility that certainly is less expensive and, and maybe easier to produce, but that really wouldn't sit with the way or the ethos of how we want to manage things. And so, you know, it's a cool opportunity for us to kind of bring that forward and show people how you can take something that's, you know, necessary in order for us to treat aluminum to, to make it more sustainable also, right? It has a longer lifespan, uh, but then also to make sure that, that we're doing it in, in the best way possible. And so the B Corp status really is just a way that, you know, you, you tell people that's what you're doing. And so B Corp has a number of criteria that they're going after and they look at, um, you know, they look at, uh, are you, are you paying equitable wages and are you taking care of, uh, the water and what efforts have you gone into preserving electricity and, you know, least amount of electricity use and water use and carbon footprint and all those kind of things. And so it's a, I will admit that it's a, it's a pretty labor intensive process. I'm, I'm thankful they only do research every three years because otherwise it, it, uh, it almost takes a year, I think, just to do the certification, but then just gives a level of transparency, right? That, that we're sharing this information with an independent organization that then is taking a look at it and comparing us to other organizations. And, um, you know, I, I would encourage, encourage, you know, other businesses to look at this in the fly fishing industry, because I think it's a, it's an important thing to do to show that we're again, pulling forward that kind of ethos and uh, fish pond and others have, have done the same. Wow. Great. Yes. That's a perfect uh, summary of that. And we talked about earlier, you mentioned the 50 years, maybe we can, you know, highlight that. What, what um, maybe talk about that. What does that mean to Ross? How have they done it all these years? What's the secret? What do you think are some of the secrets to the success there? Oh man. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. Secret. I, I guess I would say <laughs> secret for sure is going to be innovation. I think Ross has done a great job at constantly changing, evolving, staying on top of, you know, of, of innovations, not only from just drag, but also the aesthetic. And when you look at a Ross reel, you know, they've definitely changed over time, but I think they've always been on the cutting edge uh, of the aesthetic, uh, of the innovation, of the end use and, and going from, you know, small arbor to large arbor reels and changing to a lower startup inertia and the drag materials they're using. And then I, I think another big one is just what we just talked about, that that they were pretty much always connected to fly shops and independent retail and the fly fishing industry in a pretty heavy way. And, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, we're trying to maintain those and, and make sure we just pull that forward. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, and so 50 years, are you guys, uh, I guess I'm trying to think now the other companies are the, there, are they close to the same range? Able, they've been around a while. What does that look like? Yeah, Abel's 88, Airflow's uh, mid-80s. Uh, so Ross is definitely wins the award, I think, for, for longest standing. But yeah, they're all within that 30 to 40 year range uh, for sure. Gotcha. Okay. And and I want to highlight Gareth uh, Jones was on episode 386. We had a great episode, like you said. He's just, uh, he's done everything. So uh, we'll put a link to the show notes to that. How did that come to be? Because I know that was a little more recent. Uh, I think Airflow, I'm not sure. Maybe you could describe how, and talk about the process of, you know, it seems like a lot of, there's a lot of these, I'm not sure if you call them holding companies or brands like Mayfly Outdoors, where you, you basically, you know, purchase companies, I guess. And the idea is, is that you're helping these companies um, do a better job at what they do. Is that kind of how this works? Maybe describe that process a little bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, Airflow was a acquired around three or four years ago. It was also held by a little bit of a, a holding company, but not a fly fishing specific holding company. And I think, you know, what Mayfly really saw was an opportunity to to bring it forward. And and again, it, it 
follows with the same ethos of of what we see in the other brands. And I th- I think one of the things that's special about Airflow is that, you know, when you think about the major fly line manufacturers, they're, you know, mostly are PVC and um and uh and Airflow is polyurethane. It's the only primary po- you know, fly line manufacturer that's actually polyurethane. And we have things that we think are important about that, you know, of of, you know, the material being more inert. And, you know, having less of these plasticizers and stuff that, that might get leached, but also it's a completely different process in the way that it's extruded at high pressure rather than low pressure. And, and, and so a really different product, but, and, and I think that's what we saw as the opportunity there and, um, certainly has been a, a bit of a, of a, of a rebuilding with airflow, right. As we're looking at updating some equipment and all that always takes time, especially when we're making unique, but, you know, for each of the brands as we acquired them, you know, the, the goal really is to how do you make continue to make the best product or even elevate the product? How do you take care of the people and the place that you're in? And so, you know, with Airflow, it was a really cool opportunity for the company to come in and invest in uh, the building and, and update the building and make it a much more desirable place to work. And, you know, Airflow sits in, uh, in Brecon, Wales, which is actually right on the edge uh, with even actually part of it in a national park, Brecon Beacons. And uh, again, just another kind of really special place. If you haven't been there, it's, it's just a really cool, uh, really cool place, small town uh, manufacturing, kind of much more, much smaller even than Montrose. Um, I think the town is four or 5,000 people um, and pretty small. Mm. And where is this exactly? Where's the town? Uh, so Wales would be about, uh, Brecon would be about three hours uh, west of London. Yeah. Um, yeah. So cool spot. So again, investing in then the place that, that we're um, employing people, making it a better place to come and live and, you know, employ, but then also updating the technology and the amount of advancements that we've done in technology with Airflow is really remarkable. And and you'll see more of that come through in kind of the next 12 months as uh, we're able to bring a little bit of that to light. It just takes a little bit of time to do that and in, in that investment. And, and to the point then of Mayfly and kind of these holding groups, I think that's part of the benefit, right, is when you could have a few brands under one heading, there's some economy there, right? There's some ability to to uh, have a couple of people work in a couple of different brands and our, like our marketing team works for multiple brands and sales, same thing. And, you know, for these smaller fly fishing brands, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a good, it's kind of a good recipe for success. So I think it's worked for us to some degree. And, and then also allows us to, to diversify a little bit, right? And, um, and at the same time, I think there's some benefit to fly shops as well, where they can come to, you know, one company and get, you know, four really solid brands and, and uh, you know, have to deal with one group. And, and I think there's some benefit there. And as long as we're, you know, doing what we can to support the fly fishing industry and, and maintain those legacies, I think that'll continue to be a good recipe for success quick break for a word from our sponsor with more than 40 years of experience in coffee the anglers coffee team roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind delivering excellent coffee to every single angler responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices you can rest easy knowing you are doing your part roasted and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness For me, it's all about that freshness and taste when I crack open a bag of anglers in the morning. I feel good because I know not only does it taste great, but I am supporting great movements along the way. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go teabag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Anglers is serving your needs. 
It's time to step up to better coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes we love. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash anglers right now to grab a bag of greatness today. That's anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S, to make a change today. You mentioned, well, we talked about, I wanted to hear, you know, just on the smart wall. I want to go back to that just mainly because I've I've got a lot of smart wall stuff, but I know it's a really good product. I recently bought some, you know, last winter, some like long johns and stuff, and this, it kind of blew me away. But I'm curious, you must have been there a while. Do you, have you taken away a lot from that position into what you're doing now? Like, I'm not sure what your daily looks like, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mostly just took away a lot of really good clothing that I still <laughs> right. haven't been wearing. Yeah, um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I it is good. I think you know, smart. Well, it, it's another good example, right, of a holding company, a VF Corp. Um, that's a publicly traded organization holding. I think they do about nine billion a year in revenue. And, you know, smart wool is obviously a, a small component of that, but you do take away a lot. I think, I think there's a lot of benefit to people that are, you know, wanting to be in the fly fishing industry of having some bigger company experience and seeing how maybe you do assortment planning or financial planning or inventory warehouse management, those kind of things that are broader scale. Um, it, I think it just gives you tools, um, right, to be able to manage, you know, it almost doesn't matter whether, right, you're managing 100 SKUs or 100,000 SKUs, but if you have good tools to do that, it's it's just going to make it easier. So I think that's the probably the most important thing that I've taken away from that, as well as the people side. You know, VF's um, mantra was always people first and it is still people first, I think. And we believe the same thing here at, at Mayfly. And, and uh, you know, we've implemented a number of things, I think, to try to make it a, a cool place to come and work. I, I know for me, you know, I, working in the fly fishing industry, it, you know, it, it's probably not the highest paid industry, but the so it's got to be cool, right? We, we got to have something, a reason to draw you in. And so I think the cool thing about being in Montrose is, you know, as we're talking, I'm looking out my window at the Uncompagre River and and uh, a pond that's just outside here, and we can literally fish 100 feet away from the office. Um, we give, uh, you know, Fridays off and fishing Fridays, and and try to want people to get outside. and And I think a lot of that, you know, comes from at least my experience in working for these companies, where, you know, if you take care of your people, they're going to take care of you and the rest of the organization. And so we really try to have that kind of people first mindset. And and so I think I took a lot away from VF from that. I, I'd say Cabela's is probably my best experience in leadership and and they really invested heavily in uh, executive coaching and leadership training um, and then in a, a lot of the work that we did in assortment planning at, at one time I was uh, over planning inventory manager over the fishing area at Cabela's and you know we had believe it or not close to a million skews um, just just fishing yeah just fishing and you wow. think about that um, you know that many skews in that many stores in order to manage it, you, you have to do it by exception and with the right tools. And so being able to bring high power tools like that into an organization, then, you know, that's a little smaller. And even if it's a small SKU set, really helps you to kind of be able to even manage those uh, processes and tools more efficiently. And, and I think it makes it fun, right? Because then then you're taking these tools and and helping people enjoy their jobs, make their jobs more efficient. And and I think that's, that's really cool. And I, I love to see people you know, excel and, and do better in their roles. And, and the more tools that you can do and the more successful people feel, right. The better they're going to, the better they're mm-hmm. going to do. Wow. So, yeah. 
That's impressive. Yeah, I mean, a million skews sounds crazy, but yeah, Cabela's is giant. And doesn't Cabela's, I'm trying to think, does Cabela's own Bass Pro or Bat, right? There's that out there too, right? Or does Bass Pro own Cabela's? Uh, yeah, I, something like I'm, that. I, I can't yeah. keep track of it, but no, that might be a whole podcast. And yeah, that's a whole other thing. Um, right. <laughs> well, I, I want to just give, give me a little bit on your daily. I want to hear, like, at your level, like, what does that look like for you? You're in, you know, kind of at these higher levels. What's your what's your day, your week look like? Oh man, yeah. I mean, I, I think I have. So I, I try to create teams that are autonomous, right? I, I do not believe in managing or micromanaging, but in leadership and the difference there, right, is how you empower your teams. And so, you know, a lot of what I do on a weekly basis is uh, regular check-ins with uh, our directors of uh, finance and sales and product and engineering and and tracking on projects and how we're, how we're going with things and really just trying to support each of those functional areas as much as possible. And so, you know, those, those check-ins are critical. Uh, I try to spend time each week on the floor and talking to employees as much as I can, for sure. Uh, try to spend time on the water. That's part of why we came out with Fishing Fridays is, um, you know, you're, you're not really authentic or you're going to be good at managing a fishing business if you're not out doing it. Uh, and then definitely try to reserve time then for product development. I think with my background, it's one of the areas that, that I can really help in the organization. And so really trying to spend time on product development, working on the longer term strategic planning of the organization and what our long range product plan looks like. And, uh, um, and then, you know, obviously there's the, you know, just leaving time for problem solving, you know, no matter how much right. you think things are, are comes up. you know, going either great or not great or whatever, there's always something every week that comes up. And so you got to make sure that you've got time to, to be able to do that, but it's definitely a seven day a week, you know, job and not meaning that I'm in the office all seven days for 12 hours a day, but just kind of continuously connected to, to what's going on, whether it's in the industry or with our teams, you know, whether they're here in Colorado, California, or in the UK. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice, nice. Well, I, and so one thing you hear about, and I'm not sure if this applies to you, it really sounds like from hearing about your background in conservation and the companies that maybe it doesn't, but you hear about some of these just in general in, in the industry, people talking about these, you know, giant corporations or companies coming in and buying up all these fly fishing brands. And then this, like, it's almost like the evil, you know, you know, corporation. Talk about that a little bit. Well, why is that out there? Is, is there any truth to that? Why, why do people have that feeling? I know people are, are biased and wrong on a lot of things, but I, I think that is out there. It doesn't seem like that's what you guys are like, but describe, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think in every industry, people are wanting to, certainly outdoor industry, people want to, one, be connected to a brand and, and even a movement um, and want to know that there's kind of a uniqueness to it. And, you know, you definitely see products go through or brands go through kind of incubation periods and then to, to major growth. Um, I think of a, a brand like, uh, I'll just use a clothing brand like Prana, right, that starts out as this kind of cool incubator brand, has a kind of a climbing outdoor ethos to it. Um, and then I think it was actually like Shields that picked them up and really grew. And now they're Shields, REI everywhere and, and have grown from a really small. And, and I think that your demographic kind of changes along the way. And, you know, North Face, Patagonia, they all started kind of the same way and grew. And I think 
people that are looking to continue to identify with the brand. And, and so, you know, Patagonia is probably a great example of a brand or even Orvis is a good example of brands that regardless of the size and how they've kind of grown over time, maintain a, uh, an ethos. They maintain a connectivity with their consumers. And I think as long as you do that, I don't think people alienate the brand. I think we're, you know, people get this idea that, you know, if you get bought out by a larger company, it's not going to be cool anymore. It's not really going to, um, you know, resonate with them is when the, the parent company that acquires them, um, it, you know, they alienate where they came from. And sometimes that's intentional, right? They're, they see a broader opportunity and they're okay alienating a small demographic to go after a larger one. Um, but, uh, you know, it just depends on what the shareholders are wanting to do and what they want to grow to. And, and that I think also changes how you grow and, you know, and, and I, you know, SEMS is, is probably right on that kind of precipice of where they go with, with where, where they're at and, and could be an amazing opportunity to index more heavily into the fishing market and get a, you know, a broader appeal. Uh, at the same time, there could be a pivot there. And, and so we'll see what happens. But um, I think for us, it, it's, you know, just maintaining that identity. There's probably never going to be a time where any of these brands, because they are so niche and specific right. in fly fishing, are ever going to be at risk of growing into something that. Like a um, Ross, Ross spinning reel or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't foresee <laughs> that happening, but yeah. You know, that, uh, yeah. And, and I think it's, yeah, people just wanting to be connected with the thing that they really like. And as long as you cater to that, if, you know, as you grow, you can do it. But that's right. It certainly maintains, you know, there, there certainly is always a risk in doing that. And every time that we think about, you know, Dyna King is a good example, right? Oh, yeah. Three to four brands, even though each of the brands may not be growing, is there not a potential that people could say, well, man, Mayfly is getting, I don't even think most people know what Mayfly is, which is totally fine with us. And, I, I want people to identify with Dynaking. And again, I don't know that a fly shop really will notice other than the fact that, you know, when they go to pay their bills or they get their terms or something, right, they actually just might get better terms if, you know, they have multiple brands with us. And I think that's a cool opportunity. Again, I think that's a way that we can kind of cater to the to the fly fishing industry. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And Dynaking, I've had my Dynaking. I've got a couple vices, but yeah, I, I love my Dynaking. It's, it's been a great vice. It's uh yeah, I think it's another one, like you said, one, another one of those great products out there. Um, I want to touch on, um, you know, a little bit on just quickly on fishing uh, and talk about what, because you obviously have a, a love, a passion for this. So what is your, you know, species wise, um, you know, you, you have a free day. What, what are you chasing? Is carp is something of like right now? What are you into? Man, I, I am just a total fish nerd. Uh, I just have to say everything that first. You're like good I, with everything. I, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. I will say, I think that there's, uh, there is definitely something that I love about carp fishing and, and picked up, I have a 18 foot bass boat that I put a pulling platform on and, and, um, you know, fully decked out for us to hit the flats or whatever we're doing for carp. And I've done a few carp episodes with Chad Lachance and, and a few others on, on fly. And, and I think the reason why I love it is one, it's, it's a species that is so, it can be so hard to catch, but it's so accessible, right? It doesn't almost matter where you are in any of the lower 48. You're going to find carp probably closer to you than any other species, um, which is interesting. Most of the time, they're almost always sight fishing, or at least that's the only way I will fish for them really is sight fishing. And they can be really tough to catch. Now, at the same time, they can be on the feed and, and super easy. And we've had some great, you know, you know, high, high count days, but 
um, you know, it's a fish that you can catch literally on the surface. They can grow to 10, 20, 30 pounds or more. But I think the other piece kind of going back to conservation, I, I probably start to sound like a broken record here is that, you know, we're looking definitely in fly fish and I want to see more people fly fish because I think more people that fly fish, there's a, after you've done it for a while, there's an inherent conservation ethic that kind of comes with it, or at least that's been the way that it, that's happened. And so for me, when I think about carp fishing, I, you know, I, I, I often say it was probably one of the biggest fish and wildlife, uh, U.S. fish and wildlife mistakes ever made in the way that they released them and brought them here, but they're not going away. There's no way that you can eradicate them. Wow. That was, that was the U S fish and wildlife service that brought carp here. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's pretty, what do you you know that story? Originally as a food fish, um, you know, in the, in Southern U S and, and being raised as a food fish and, and I, there was a, uh, I think an incidental release at one point in time, at least this is of common carp grass carp were completely different, but, um, and so, you know, and then they've continued to, to, to spread obviously. And some of that other uh, later introductions were through, you know, different means, but, you know, we want more people fishing for sure. However, right. Cold water fisheries and a narrow ribbon of, of cold water flowing through the Rockies can only support so many fish and then only so many fisher, fisher people. And I think the, cool thing about carp is you you just can't put enough pressure on them right the more pressure you put on them the more you're just going to reduce their population which is also a good thing and so you can get you know we could get people out fly fishing way more days on warm water resources that can take that kind of fishing pressure and still learn how to cast and tie and have cool presentations and awesome hookups and cool places still right that are you know uh, fun places to still go um, and never hurt those cold water resources. In fact, protect the cold water resources by doing that. So I, I just think it's the it's the perfect complement to the fishing industry where we're at of trying to get more people in, worried about the cold water resources, but still have a, a species of fish that people can go after and and uh, not have to worry about any of that. Literally, right, and, right. Um, like you know, actually keep them wet. Totally. Yeah, all that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I I think it's just a cool opportunity, but if I, you know, I I would either, (laughs) this is probably going to seem like an odd uh, mixture, but I would either be probably carp fishing uh, or the other thing I love to do and and guided in Rocky Mountain National Park for a while is just super high mountain, small streams, you know, one, two weight rod stuff uh, on a dry dropper and just, you know, fishing, fishing those high mountain streams. Right. For, uh, no, like, is that cutthroat or what are those species? Yeah. Often, th- yeah, there are some cutthroat up there. It's also rainbows, browns, but yeah, rainbows. a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's got it all. As well. yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for spay and swung fly techniques for the OP and beyond. They're known for their deep selection of unique high-quality fly tie materials, and they are the gateway to some of the great steelhead rivers in the country. I was able to get out on the water with Ed, and it was an amazing day. We uh, hit the shop early, met him at the shop. We fired up the old vehicle and headed out on the river. Ed is the type of guy that you feel comfortable right from uh, minute one. And it was a good day. We ended the trip uh, for buying into this unimproved boat ramp, uh, pulling the boat out, and then we ended up with a great opportunity uh, and landed a nice, very nice cromer and had a few other touches. Fished one of the great rivers in the country. It was amazing. 
Not only do they cover steelhead, but all species in the area, and they have a passion for all fish that swim up or live around salt. They can outfit any angler from the beginner to the most hardcore fishing bum you can imagine. They have a great online store, fast shipping, and uh, you will be supporting conservation when you support Waters Last. Please check in with Ed and Kyle right now to say hi and let them know you heard uh, from them on this podcast. And you can do that right now, wetflyswing.com slash waterswest. And do you remember when carp, it seems like they're definitely a, a cool now, but do you remember when that they started to become, you know, when that switch, or was that just a gradual switch over the years? Uh, I don't, I still don't know. think that it's still. Oh, right. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. (laughs) It seems like, you know, it depends on who you talk to, whether or not it it actually is cool. But I, you know, I I think it's actually one of the prior CEOs of uh, Ross, Brad Beefus, who wrote Carp on Fly with Barry Reynolds. I think they shared that authorship. And I think, you know, that is probably the, when it started to become more popularized. Um, That said, yeah, I, I still think there's a stigma around it. And I, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't understand that for all the reasons that we just mentioned, because it just doesn't make sense. Um, but I still find opposition even right when you're trying to like write articles or we're talking about carp fishing or podcasts. Oh, right. You do. So you write a carp article and you hear some feedback on it. Like, yeah, they just don't get as much readership, right? Oh, they, sure. So, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. trout are still the thing. And I, I get yeah, that, true. right? They're yeah. beautiful. It's cool places. It's cold water. It's yeah. all of that. But yeah, it is. Um, I think we, I, I would say, we, I think we even have a responsibility to try to get people on, and, and not just carp, but even, you know, we're, we're warm water fisheries that are um, stocked in some way, like uh, largemouth bass or, you know, sunfish, those kind of things that can support, you know, have higher reproduction rates and and can support higher pressure, I think, or it's important for us to get that out. And, you know, if you think about it, um, it's also historically what happened even in, in America. If you look at Paul Schollery's book on American history of fly fishing, he often talks about how people fishing in America were fishing for various species, right? Whether it was chubs or smallmouth bass or whatever it might be. And we only kind of created this uh, fly fishing trout stigma. I mean, it's always been there, right? It's always had some cold water relevancy to it, but multi-species angling and fly fishing was pretty common, uh, especially in oh, America wow. in the early days. Oh, sure. 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 That's uh, yeah. You don't realize that. I guess I don't even, I've interviewed and heard people, you know, the first steelhead when they started chasing steelhead and stuff, but yeah, you don't hear about those other species, species early on. It seems like it was all salmonids, right? Yeah, I mean, that's often what gets talked about, but uh, there's a lot of historical evidence that it was also smallmouth bass or chub, basically whatever was going to be in some of these streams, right, as it spread throughout uh, eastern U.S. and and up and down, um, and then, you know, integrated into the corridor, you know, inner, inner areas of, of America. Yeah, I mean, they were catching a variety of species. It wasn't always, always trout. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, you, you're a casting instructor. I just want to get one tip out of you here on the casting. So, you know, you're out there, you know, with the wind blowing in your face or, you know, you get struggled. What, what's your, what's your tip on the wind? Do you have any, any, you know, getting that fly out there? Yeah, that's I, actually, that's uh, mentioning wind is the perfect segue. So again, growing up in Nebraska, most of the, it was, you know, exceptionally windy. And I think actually one, so I'll give you two tips. One, practice casting. Most people don't actually go out and have a line where you can actually go out and practice. And two, practice in the wind. The thing that made me a good caster, if I am a good caster, but made me okay at casting, I think, is 
actually practicing in the wind and trying to cast into a headwind and generate power and tighten up your loop and, you know, change your trajectory and do all of those things necessary to cast in the wind. Cause all of those things apply, whether the wind is blowing or not. And so if you can cast, you know, 30 feet into a 20 mile an hour headwind, you're probably going to be able to land a dry fly at 60 feet pretty delicately. Right. right Cause the same the amount of plate. Yeah. Totally. Cause the power that it takes to cast 30 feet, you know, into a, a 20 mile hour headwind is probably the same roughly as what it would take to cast 60 feet. And I think you just learn efficient casting, you learn good application of power. And so practice casting and especially practice when the wind and, and just the weather sucks. Perfect. Perfect. And who are your, uh, instructors? I'm not sure when you went through, you, you're certified, uh, through the, yeah. yeah. who yeah. are your, um, are they mentors or what, what are they called when you go through that? Yeah. I, I mean, and I was so fortunate, um, in the early two thousands to have just so many great people that I worked with. I think at that time casting was cool. I think like carp casting somehow has become uncool, right? Because we're so into nymph fishing and stuff. I don't know. Um, but you know, for me, it was just some of the great instructors and honestly, I just, I probably was an absolute pain in their butt, but I just started reaching out to guys like, uh, Tim Rajeff and Steve and Bruce Richards and Tom White, who's passed away or Dusty Sprague or, you know, a, a variety of these other instructors that at the time were just really well-known, notable instructors and just spending time with them, asking questions with them and, um, you know, most of them are, are good friends still today. And, uh, yeah, it's just amazing what, you know, what you can learn from people that have been doing it that are, you know, that capable as well. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. We had, uh, Tim on recently and it was just, we had him on for, a, it was like a transition. He was talking about how he was transitioning the company over, you know, to the new, uh, you know, and, but it was so amazing because even the snippet of hearing him talk, I mean, he's so, he's so like every word he says, you can just, you know what I mean? He's just nerdy about it. So I'm hoping we're going to get it. We're going to get him back on for a full casting episode. But what, what's the Tim? I mean, what, what, would you look at that guy? Like, is oh, it just man. everything he says is pretty much you're, you're listening to, right? Yeah. I mean, he just exudes. Actually, we, we literally were out. He just left this morning. We were out oh, fishing really? yesterday and was oh, wow. here at the, at the factory helping out with some airflow stuff. And nice. yeah, uh, you know, we, we did a seven hour float yesterday and I think we covered everything from, probably just nerdy casting stuff to like um, expanding universe and cosmological principles. I don't even know how we got on right. that topic, but yeah, from everything. And and I love guys like that because I, I think you'll find there's a lot of um, people that try to be maybe intellectuals in the fly fishing industry. It's just great, right? Because you're yeah. surrounded by people that, that think deeply about a number of topics, uh, including fly fishing. And I think you see that. I think a lot of that comes through in the literature in fly fishing, but you see it come through in Tim's uh, rod designs and fly line designs throughout throughout the years. But yeah, he's he nerds out on about everything he does. Nice, nice, nice. Well, I want to start to take it out of here. Um, we've got, we usually do a little shout out, uh, you know, our fly shop. I love to do a little shout out to the fly shops. Um, but uh, maybe maybe we'll start there, you know, where you're at. Do you guys have, I mean, Colorado is always known for lots of fly shop. Do you have a few local shops around your area? Yeah, we have uh, two great shops in town, Montrose Anglers and Ed's Fly Shop that are, uh, yeah, both just really great full service shops for guiding and everything. And yeah, I would highly recommend visiting them and coming out and taking a trip or uh, coming out and exploring our waters out this way too in the, in the western, western Colorado area. 
Perfect. Perfect. And, uh, and I'm just going to do a little quick little uh, rapid fire round to take us out of here. But um, you mentioned Fly Fusion. Do you have, it sounds like you're still writing for them. Is there one article we could look up that you remember or maybe got a lot of uh, traction out there that you, you've written recently or in the past? Uh, my, probably the one that gets them. So my rod reviews. So I've, I've done the rod reviews for a number of years. I, um, I, I don't anymore, but used to, especially in this position, but I used to, um, I think those actually got the highest readership. And then my last one, um, we're just talking about the difference between fly fishing and conventional, especially with some of the Euro techniques. And I'd highly recommend thinking about that one because, it really comes down to this, you know, what defines fly fishing and, and not that I'm trying to divide, but more than anything, I think I just want to make sure that people don't lose fly casting and fly fishing, right? I, I, your own imp myself. I love tight lining. I love all of that, but just, I just not to lose fly casting because yeah, it, it is just a cool kind of beautiful thing to do. And, and there's a lot to it and there's a lot of science behind it and it's a great connectivity and, you know, I, yeah. So just don't lose fly. fly that. Yeah. That's actually, I think Tim actually on that episode asked me, we got in that conversation. He said, he asked me what I thought defines fly casting. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, I think it is, you have to kind of have a, you know, castings, a line, right? The fly line. It seems like that is part of it, but, but that's a good conversation. Um, so I want to do one shout out again. Conserv- I love to do a conservation shout out. You've talked to a few uh, American Rivers is having their fiftieth, couple of fiftieth anniversaries. They're also having their fiftieth. We did an episode with um, on the Klamath Dam removals um, on that whole program recently. Um, so I'm going to give a shout out to them. Do you want to give a shout out to one more uh, conservation group? You've mo- you've noted a uh, number TU FFI. Any others that you you know think about? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, Colorado TU is probably the one just right now that comes to mind. They've just been great partners in everything we do, and and um, we're just super excited about the couple of projects that we have going for native fisheries and and the way that they've been supporting that. Perfect, perfect. And what about? Uh, so I always love to dig into a little on music uh, or podcasting. So are you a big music fan, or do you listen? What do you listen to when you're traveling? Oh gosh, man, I I love music. I, there's probably nothing. I, I listen to everything, uh, honestly. When I when it comes to music, I'm kind of nerdy on '70s rock uh, okay. for sure. I'm a, a love Metallica. Oh, there you um, go. And, and podcasts. I, I I mean, you know, obviously the the one we're on, but uh, yeah. <laughs> my, my others would be like Ologies podcast. I'm a total oh, yeah. science nerd. I just love you know all these kind of different nerdy. Yeah. What, and what more. would be one? What would be a good? Get anything in your in your current feed that you would think of that you've listened to recently that you could check out? I mean, the most recent one was the the Ologies podcast on cosmology. Actually, I think that's probably oh, okay. how it came up, right? And in, in the origins of the universe, and yeah, kind of wow, repeating cycle. So I yeah, that's cool. That's it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the origin that doesn't get much deeper than that, right? right? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect. All right, so you've got, uh, and we'll just give you the rod re- reel. So you've got one rod weight, length, and weight, and you can only have one for. Oh. for what, what are you going with? Yeah, I'd, forever. Yeah, I mean, my go-to is always a nine hundred five, just because I'm a casting geek and right. And, but if I had to just have one that I'm going to try to fish just a little bit of everything, it'd probably be a nine hundred six. Okay, nine hundred six. There you go. It's always like between the five and the six weight. Yeah. So the the six is better in the wind, right? Yeah, I only choose the six because I like to go after pike and bigger stuff, and I you know throwing those big flies with the five weight is kind of tough. Uh, otherwise, it'd be a five. So gotcha. The five and a half weight. The five and a half weight, right? And you, that that reel you mentioned at the start. What what was the name of that uh, six? It's the sixth one ever uh, made. 
What was that? Yeah, that was the original Ross, or yeah, the original Ross reel. I mean, it was just called the Ross reel. That's it. There was no model. It was literally the Ross reel. So if we wanted to look that up, we could, okay, I want to just get a look at. And how different does that look than, say, one of the new models? Oh, yeah, it's it's completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Solid front and back, you know, drag similar to kind of like what a Fluger would have, right, where it's a screw type on the side that's putting kind of, you know, pressure. But yeah, if I had to, Choose one reel. We didn't talk about Able much, but I, I would probably go with uh, a Rove, um, the Able Rove, and, and we just came out with a Titanium edition. So probably the Able Rove Titanium with the Peacock Bass paint job on it. Right? Oh, so, there you go. Yeah, sick. I have to check that one out. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jeff, I think we'll I think we'll leave it there. Like you said, we didn't dig into Able uh, much today, but I think we'll probably be following up uh, with you and maybe uh, touch on that, go a little deeper. Um, but this has been great. I think I've learned a ton. Um, do you want to give a like a heads up, maybe in the next the rest of this year, into next year, anything new coming? You've mentioned a few things. Anything else coming up with the brands? Oh man, yeah, we have so many. <laughs> yeah. There's almost too many, to, but I, I will say, look for a fall launch from Ross and a fall launch from Able of a couple of the biggest collabs that I can think of in the fly fishing industry. And they will be, uh, yeah, we're, we're super excited about what we're doing, but yeah, we've got a couple of collaborations that'll be coming out here in the next four weeks that we'll be announcing and sending out some press releases on, but, um, that'll both go to conservation as well as a little bit of a feed into the sporting world. So we're, we're excited. Perfect. This is amazing. Yeah. I always, I didn't know the background there, you know, the conservation piece, that's pretty awesome with your background and obviously you're bringing it in even more into the brands you're working, you know, working with. So this is really cool to hear. Um, yeah, we'll send everybody out. Well, we at rossreels.com if folks have questions, uh, if they want to take a look at some of the reels we talked about. But um, but yeah, Jeff, I appreciate all the time today and definitely connecting with you. And uh, thanks for all the good work you're doing for conservation and, and the products. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.